0: folks welcome back to naturally adventurous this is ken and charlie we have uh just hit you with two consecutive weeks of my top 10 costa rica sightings and we are just going to keep it going with a top five <laughs> list from charlie from a recent thailand trip that he guided hopefully people are not sick of this format generally people seem to enjoy these <laughs> I think, Charlie, you were a bit inspired as we went through my Costa Rica highlights. Uh, you were thinking of... It was. Uh,
1: I was like, wait a minute. I want to do one of these too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you want to be the star. So I'm I'm looking yeah. forward to, to hearing uh, Charlie's highlights. There's some pretty, pretty cool birds. Nothing there that grips me off. I think I've seen them all. But uh, yeah, looking forward to hearing about these. Before we get into Thailand, though, a quick tour promo. I'm going to be guiding an Alaska tour for tropical birding in June. Uh, This is one of the most popular trips that tropical birding or or any company does in the United States, and for good reason. It's a a really tough place to get on your own. Um, This tour is basically spent in three main areas, and then there's an extension to St. Paul. But uh, yeah, a really good chance to get to some incredibly wild, exciting birding areas way up in Alaska. And there's a couple slots still available on the tour. So if anybody was able to join, get in touch with me or write directly to Tropical Birding. Either way, if you do that and you mention that you heard about it on the podcast, that would be great. But, uh, <laughs> yep, would love to see some listeners on that Alaska trip. So, yeah, for Thailand, um, what what was the premise here of the trip or uh, what was, th- this was a custom trip, if I recall correctly,
1: kind of a cleanup trip? yeah. Kind of a clean-up trip, but the lady had actually not been there. She's been to most of the countries around Thailand, but not actually Thailand itself. It's a lady that's done a lot of tours with us. You know her well. I do. She's one of the original clients of Tropical Birding. She's been coming on tours with... I think she's done 20 tours with Tropical Birding. Real valued client, but someone we know well, and uh, we've been through a lot together. (laughs) Oh, yeah. She was on a tour earlier in the year, I think in Ghana with me. And she said she'd never been to Thailand. I was like, come on, you've, you must have been to Thailand. She's she'd never been. And she's she's got like um, sensitive lungs, I think. she's She's got like allergic to smoke. And Thailand's a kind of a smoky place at the time we normally do it, which is February, March. Best time of year for, for birding. But it's, um, you know, if you've got uh, asthma or any kind of uh, lung problems, it's not a, a great time to be in the country, really. The nicer time for climate and for air quality is December. All the winter birds are in, you know, it's decent birding. And birds are not really breeding so much, not really responding to playback as much. But you still see quite a lot. So I said, look, if you want to come to Thailand, I really recommend that you come in December. So we started uh, brainstorming a trip. She gave me her, her target list and I went through I've got this great little system of figuring out how many lifers somebody will get. So she gave me her target list. I put a probability for each species of the probability of her seeing it. And it was, I, you know, it was like, you know, 50% chance or 90% chance or 10% chance and I went through and, you know, you do 0. 0.9, 0. 0.1, 0. 0.5 and then you just total up all the birds that are possible on the tour and then that gives you an estimate of how many lifers she's going to get did you ever do anything like that? Definitely. Yeah. The custom trip, the
0: first trip I did after COVID in South Africa, I had it very targeted for the new birds, for the folks on that trip. And uh, they were impressed by its accuracy.
1: (laughs) If you know a place well, you know, you can do it. Anyway, so I estimated that I would get a 42 lifers. How many lifers do you think I got it? 44. 42 wow <laughs> i hit the nail absolutely on the head it was uh, it was incredible yeah but it, it's a system that works works quite well so yeah so it's basically a custom trip she brought her friend along who was also uh, a birder um so there's these two um older ladies and me in a suv zooming around thailand trying to find uh, all these very difficult birds right all the toughest birds of thailand the toughest birds of thailand yeah she's been to cambodia laos southeast china bhutan bits of india um, borneo you know so she's she's covered all her bases like around a but she hadn't been to thailand so um i was left with this very tough shooting list of birds that i had to try and find her and you know the baseline of difficulty in thailand
0: is pretty high There are not that many <laughs> easy birds so an easy birds bird in are, general that uh, yeah yeah on that scale a, t- a tough bird on that scale is quite a tough bird
1: it's a strange place. There's, there's some places you go on birding trips and you see most of the birds every time. You go somewhere like Madagascar or Namibia, or whatever, you're seeing like 90, 95% of the birds. You see most of the birds every time you go. Thailand is not like that. There's a whole bunch of birds you're either going to see or you're not going to see, and there's nothing you can really do about it. You know, you can put more time into birding, but you're still going to miss a lot of birds. You know, you, you might do a full three week trip and get 500 species, but the list may be like, Seven or eight hundred species. So you're still going to miss two hundred species, and that's going to be a different two hundred every time. Exactly. You
0: go. Yep. Yep. I've often thought that. Well, I think we've talked about this on the podcast at mm. some point, but I think the variance among trip lists is Thailand is one of the highest. There's it's a few local. other um, yeah. West Papua's up there. Any anything on New Guinea is up there, but yeah, it makes it for an exciting destination, at least for a guide. Yeah. All right. So you you found. 42 targets i assume all five of these were among those but these were the best five so we're going to kick things
1: off no they weren't okay she'd actually yeah she's actually seen the first one before although the other lady hadn't she really wanted to see it but it's such a good bird that it's uh yeah that it made the list
0: i gotcha but we'll kick things off with number five out of your
1: top five which is spoonbilled sandpiper yep pretty mega bird if you like shorebirds it it's probably going to be up there on your most wanted birds in Thailand. It's um so and a lot of Brits especially very very into shore birds and oh yeah. water birds and coastal birds so you proper know, this birding is like proper birding yeah you want to be you know facing a gale and you know,
0: <laughs> squinting through a scope
1: yeah squinting through a scope and yeah look at it, some little brown com. thing yeah no that's that's doesn't get better than that. So yeah, it's it's just a totally unique little bird. You get these shorebirds, sandpipers and stints and stuff and they just, you know, run around in the mud and you know, they're not they're nice, you know, if you like that kind of thing. I actually like really like shorebirds, but this thing is just so weird and out there. It's this little shorebird, but then it's got this like spoon bill and it's just totally unique amongst uh amongst shorebirds like that. And it's so rare, you know, it breeds up in Siberia winters down in in Southeast Asia and there's just been so much habitat on that migration route that's been lost especially in places like Japan and the Korean peninsula they've just they've just reclaimed so much so many of these intertidal mudflats that there's not enough food for a lot of the birds to make it you know it's only the very strongest birds that can actually uh, make make that migration there's plenty of uh, winter habitat. There's plenty of breeding habitat, but it's that it's that uh, migration route that's problematic.
0: Do you know the current status, at least in Thailand? I'm I, at some point there were maybe a dozen or something, and then I heard it was down to like one individual.
1: <laughs> What's going on now? So this is part of the story. When I when I started doing my tours to Thailand, which is probably what like twelve years ago. I think the first year there was maybe, because there's two sites. One is really close to Bangkok. It's like, you know, less than an hour's drive from Bangkok. It's called Kok Kam, um, an area of the city called Samutsakon. And that was a, always a famous site. And then in fairly recent times, maybe like 15 years ago, people found the birds at this other site a little bit further. It's still only like two hours drive, two, two and a half hours drive, called Pak Pakthaleh. And when I started doing tours, there was probably two or three birds at Kokkam and maybe four birds. So there was about seven. And for the last few years, it's gone down. You know, it went down year by year by one individual. And for the last, I would say, three to four years, there's probably been two birds at Paktale and one bird at Kokkam. And they're very sight faithful. I mean, they, they actually have. Uh, Spoonbilled sandpiper visitors center in Cam. and then that's exactly the spot where it comes every year. So you can you you drive into the parking lot and walk out there, and in that little salt pan, that's where it comes. You know, so and it's one bird, and the other ones as well, because it's in salt. It's in a, like a salt farm, which looks a little bit like a like a paddy field. It's like a little a mud square or rectangle with a little mud mud wall around it they kind of flatten it and then they pump seawater in and let it evaporate off and then they scrape the sand off so they have huge areas of salt farms and they seem to work really well as uh, as habitat for spoonbill sandpipers. and this bird is always in this general area yeah so um yeah I would say I would say three known birds, three regular known birds in Thailand. Wow. That's a very thin
0: occurrence. I think, isn't it still poorly known, like whether there might be some larger wintering populations in Vietnam or elsewhere?
1: There may be some in Myanmar that are not well known. Uh, I think the Chinese sites are pretty well surveyed. And I think there's, I don't know, there may be. Twenty birds there, you know. I stand to be corrected, but there's a, a, a fair number. Like near Shanghai, there's some important sites. Um, so I think that's probably the the site with the most individuals. I mean, it used to winter on the coasts of uh, India and stuff as well. There's probably some in um, in Myanmar, certain places. Sometimes other bird, the birds show up on migration in Japan, but yeah, they they tend to winter in in Southeast Asia.
0: Yeah, it certainly seems like one of those. Five or ten birds most likely to go extinct in my lifetime.
1: There's a few interesting things that they they're doing. They they've got this kind of Kickstarter program they call it. So they go up to their breeding sites. Well, at least there were. Probably not at the moment with all the the problems with Russia. But they went up, you know, over the last few years, and they found the the breeding sites, the sort of nests, and they would take eggs out of the nest, and then the birds would lay more eggs. And they would incubate those eggs and and rear the chicks. And then when all the birds set off, they would release these hand-reared birds as well. So you would get double the number of birds joining the population every year. Doesn't seem to have worked. I think what's happened is that it's only the really the older birds and experienced birds are the ones that make it. And some of these birds are flagged. And one of the Thailand birds had a flag on its leg. And you could actually read it through binoculars. It's got like a letter and a number and a color. And that bird was, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, you know. So I think it's these same birds returning. So one of these years, they're just not going to come back. You know, that's just going to get old and die. And then I think they're going to be gone. So uh, for me, this is the best reason. If you're thinking about coming to Thailand... Don't wait, you know, come soon. Um, because it's a great place to see them and then probably won't be around. The first time I saw a spoon-billed sandpiper in uh that Bactale
0: area you mentioned, I was much more moved than I expected to see this bird. It, you know, I know you're a a real uh, you've always liked endangered birds, it's never affected me as much you know a lot of endangered birds okay there's thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of them left but that one really got me just the fact that I'm looking at one of like maybe a few dozen individuals and this thing has migrated all the way from Siberia it really kind of gave me the chills when I saw that bird and you know it was simultaneously really exciting but also just tragic like it's it's not just a yeah. pure like woo yeah you know it's uh excitement and sadness mixed
1: for sure. So. And the fact that it's so distinctive, you know, yeah. I mean it's not like some analog of, of a little stint or something like that that's got, you know, a few extra little streaks on it. Something that's completely different. This crazy bill shape and different feeding behavior. I mean it's just a it's a fascinating little bird. It's really cool. So I'll just quickly yeah, describe how we how we found this, but this Paktale area has tens of thousands of birds mm. and thousands and thousands of of birds everywhere i mean it's just an incredible number of birds and and you know a lot of different species of shorebirds and finding you know one or two birds out of this these huge numbers is a you know it's a bit like finding a needle in a haystack my first few years that i did tours i would always get there and then quite often there'd be some birders there already and then you know, it's a lot easier to spot a birder than it is a, a little, you know, needle in a haystack. So you would always just make a beeline for the people, and you say, have you got it, and they'd have it," and and you'd do it. I think I missed it one year, and we're just looking everywhere and spending hours and hours. But it turns out there's a local guy called Mister Deng, and he um and he keeps he keeps track of these birds. You know, he he does he's paid to do censuses and he keeps track of their movement, so he knows exactly where they are. So I've got. Then my last few tours, you know, three tours or so, I've always used this guy and he just takes you straight to it. It's so much easier. So, um, but I, I'd sent him messages and he just hadn't replied. So I, I, I turned up at his house in the afternoon and we went out to do this little boat ride to the sand spit for these rare plovers. And I said, you know, you're available tomorrow morning. And luckily he was. So he took us up there and he took us straight to the spot and we got there at 7am and he was he was already on the bird. He just walked up to him and he points it out. But the the neat thing about when we saw it was that until that day, only one bird had been seen at Pactale this year. You know, they'd been, they may have been there for like a month already or more. And every, every time that people had seen them, they'd only seen one individual. And we were the first group that saw a second individual. We saw one. Huh? He, he's looking at one. I'm looking at another. And he, we're looking <laughs> at, well, wait a minute. These are different birds. So... And that was quite a special moment, I think, just to confirm that that season, two birds had turned up again.
0: Yeah, significant when the numbers are as low as they are. Yeah. Always a great bird to see, for sure. Even if you don't yeah. like shorebirds, it's it's a wonderful one. <laughs> but uh, yeah. we will move up onwards and upwards to your number four. It's a bird I've only seen once, actually. Which w- is... with with me. Uh, at <laughs> the well, same time. Actually, that's right. You missed it maybe twice then. with you and
1: uh And and our wives.
0: Yeah, we were with our wives and Felix as well. We it glimpsed was like a this sort of, bird. Uh, it was kind of a flyby. Yeah. But then after we, we split in southern Thailand, we had proper views of this bird. Probably at the place where yeah, you, you went, guys you saw it. I'll wait for the story. Yeah. But anyways, the bird is uh mangrove pitta.
1: Super cool habitat specialist. So there's there's quite a few pitter species in Thailand, but December is not the best month to see pitters in Thailand at all. Like I said, we'd come in December because this lady, you know, she had a, a long problem. So um we just thought we'd just see what we could do. And we went down to the south of Thailand. There was only two targets that she needed down there, because she'd been to Malaysia, she'd been to Borneo, and there's a lot of overlap. So there was only two species, and I, I thought they were both pretty gettable. One was this beautiful, big-billed kingfisher called a brown-winged kingfisher, which is also a mangrove specialist, and the other one was a mangrove pitta. And I thought, I can, I'm pretty sure I can get this species. And the rest of the trip, we were trying for pittas, and we didn't get any. There was just complete silence. At the very end of the trip, and we were just going for one night, so we had an afternoon and a morning to try and find this pitta. And we flew into Phuket and then we hired a car and then we drove like an hour to this mangrove national park called Aupanga, which is a really cool spot. And not a lot of birders go at that time. It's pretty quiet and, you know, most people come in, you know, February, March, April. And we got there about 4 p.m. We start walking around and I'm playing the pitter and the kingfisher and and just looking out for anything else. Silence. It was absolutely dead couldn't even he could could ha- he- hardly hear a single bird it was uh, it was amazingly quiet and i was thinking oh my god what have we done you know i got this lady's just paid all this money to come down here and uh and there's just nothing here at all and i was thinking oh no what a what a what a bad call it was to come here and we spent like an hour and the lights because it gets dark a bit earlier you know like around 6 p.m and it got to about five and it's It's kind of lower lights, you know, late afternoon, walking along. I'm still playing these calls. And then finally, I hear a response to this pitter. So I'm like, okay, I know it's here. I know it's responding. And then it went quiet again, another half an hour. And then it's sort of getting towards dusk. You know, the light's starting to fall a little bit. And we're ready to give up and just go back to the hotel and try again in the morning. And then we're sort of walking back to the car and I'm playing. And then another one calls quite close, and another one, and it seems in the late afternoon they started getting quite vocal, even in winter. We start playing them, and we're just standing there watching, and it's you know it's getting the the we're losing light and then finally, this bird just kind of like flies in and lands, and one lady gets on it, and then we're trying to get the other one on and and I was like, oh, and it's always like a very tense time until everybody's found this bird, but yeah, they both got on it. We had great views, then another one started calling, and then that flew in. And then they start hopping around and moving around like in front of us and we're getting great views of these things. So it seemed they got very active and vocal around dusk. But the the whole thing that I'd planned to go down there and, and they were just not vocal and it was silent. I was I was just so you know, fearful <laughs> that she was gonna be a bit pissed off about going all this way for nothing. Success in the end. Yeah, and, and pittas are so special. You know, oh, everybody yeah. loves to see a pitta. You know, any day you see a pitta is a good day. Is a good day.
0: I think the fact that that one is so specialized to that mangrove habitat, mm. there's something improbable about that to me. I think of pittas as being in kind of moist rainforest understory, but yeah. just seeing this pitta kind of on the, the stilt roots of a mangrove is just always yeah. <laughs> so cool. All right, so up to number three. This is a great bird. If you don't think that chicken-like birds are cool, you need to go do some (laughs) birding in Asia. You know, the first time I was in Asia, I sort of brought that mentality of like, eh, chickens, chickens, whatever. I was was never that excited about seeing like wood quail or even grouse. I've come around on grouse as well, but wow, there are some spectacular chicken-like birds in Asia, among which is your number three, the Siamese fireback. Awesome name as well. Like that's got to be yeah. up there in the top like twenty or thirty coolest bird names. <laughs> It'll be a good episode,
1: eh? Coolest bird we names. We should do that. We should, along with a fluffy-backed tit-babbler. Yeah. National bird of Thailand. Stunning, kind of like, and it's not—it's not real gaudy. Some birds are colourful and real gaudy, you know, like a golden pheasant or something. This is like just classy, you know it's this beautiful kind of bluish gray color and then it's got this little yellow stripe down it's got this golden thing and it's got a bright red face and these beautiful plumes that come from the top of its head it's a really smart looking bird and when they made the new birds of thailand book the field guide and um, they chose that to be on the cover there's a big um, headshot of it on the front so uh it's it's a really cool bird it's a national bird it's just a really stunning bird. And it's one that you you do kind of want to get on a Thailand tour. There's one national park called Khao Yai, which is just like two hours from Bangkok. Really cool park. And it used to be fairly easy there. I used to see it a lot more often than I do now. And it's just last few years. I've just found it harder and harder. And some tour companies are not going there anymore. They're going to other places like further afield and adding nights and stuff and going elsewhere. But um, I know it's still there, and I know where I've seen it in the past. So I thought, oh, it's just it's worth a go. Kauyai is a really popular place amongst Thais, especially at weekends, and especially in December, which is when all the Thais have time off and they go camping and stuff. And and what day did we arrive? We we arrived like on a Saturday oh, man. in Yai in December, and it was an absolute zoo. Yeah, this you yeah overestimate what a zoo it is because
0: my first time in Yai, i came in on a a weekday and it was like quiet rural thailand feels like the middle of nowhere like friday night it is like a mad max type scenario where there are just hundreds Hundreds of huge motor coaches just roaring up this tiny road passing each other and wow
1: it it's quite a transformation when we were planning the tour we had these dates, and I checked the the itinerary against the calendar, and I was like, no, wait a minute. We're going to be in Kaohsiung on a weekend. Like, We, we can't do this. <laughs> and I said, look, can we change it? Maybe just put it back a day or two? And they were like, no. she's because She was going on to somewhere else, and there were specific dates, and she had to be back by a certain date. And, and it was looking like, no, it's got to be this day. And I was like, well, okay. Yeah, let's let's give it a go. So we went there. The, the, the one thing about Kaohsiung is that you can – no matter how busy it is, it is possible to kind of escape the crowds a little bit. If you go along a trail, or there's a few places right. where birding sites where the Thai tourists don't normally go. So let's just give it a go. But you normally see this bird coming out on the edge of the road in the early morning. So we're staying at a nearby hotel outside the park and we drive in. Park opens at 6 a.m. We're sort of there, you know, soon afterwards. And we're driving in and you really there's a there's a road that I like where I've seen it more more often than anywhere else. And I thought, I wanna be the first car along this road. I wanna drive along nice and slow and I wanna be the first car. And I get along there, and I'm kind of overtaking other cars to try and get along there first, and I get along there, and then there's all these bikes and cars going past, you know, going ahead of me and and i'm thinking this is just not going to happen yep. it's just not going to happen this bird is not going to come out and and there's some nice straight bits where you can, can just pull over and just look down the road you know you see like 500 yards along this road this straight road so you got a good chance of seeing something cross and uh and we were there and just every minute there was another car two cars three cars bikes groups of bikes and i thought no it's not happening and then we did it we did it the next day again. You know, I think we tried to get there even earlier, and um, and again, all these cars were there. I think it was a I think it was a Monday morning, the second day, and we got there and nothing. And I thought, oh no, what a shame, because it's such an amazing bird. There's a trail, kilometer thirty three. I think you know this. This is where you saw that eared pitta. This yep. uh, really nice quality forest trail. They've put a sign. On the beginning of the trail now saying you can only go along there with a guide and you need to register this used to be a place you could just just go along at any time and now they say you've got to go and register at the visitor center and take a local guide and i'm like oh no this is ridiculous so i go there and i say look i'm not hiking because you, you, you can hike for miles along these trails and i think they're just worried about people getting lost or maybe some people got lost and i said i just want a birdwatch on the first stretch and they were like okay no problem so i, so I go back. You know, it's getting later now. This is on the final morning. Actually, no, we went there the first morning we were in there, after we tried the road, walking along the trail. And I look at my phone, and I don't have any calls of the bird. So I'm kind of walking along, listening, and I, I'm just not hearing anything. And because it's quite busy, hikers are starting to come in, and, and it's just not happening. So I thought the the, the, the last morning, I'm going to go back there earlier. And I'm going to take some calls. So I downloaded a few calls. And they're like little chicken clucks. You know. Well, they actually respond a little bit. When you play them back, they'll like run across the trail. So I'm walking along, listening very carefully and playing these little chicken clucking sounds. And then I hear this little clucking calling. And then I play it. It runs into the trail and stops for like half a second and then looks at us and then just charges off not to return and one of the ladies got it and one of them didn't i mean it was an amazing view but um yeah so it was kind of it was kind of good but also a bit sad that the other lady missed it they're exciting birds pheasants you know they're not they're not easy most of the time unless they're being fed but to right. just go into a forest and try and find a pheasant is not a very easy thing to do.
0: You know, there are some times when you're in a place like Kau Yai or you might be in a place like national park, national park, Taman <laughs> down in Malaysia yeah. where you just, you're walking along a trail at midday. And one of these things is kicking around in the leaf litter, like right next to the boardwalk. And it, mm. it they feel so almost cheap and easy, but yeah. no, they're not like, It's just such a function of luck. Even in the places where they are relatively tame, they can just evaporate, as you say. So I want to give people a description of this bird. I don't know if this is my forte, but it's a a bird that's worthy of description. Full disclosure, I pulled up a photo because I couldn't recall all the details. And I don't blame myself because, man, looking at this picture, there are crazy numbers of details on this bird. So it's a mid-sized chicken type of thing, big, long, sturdy legs, but it has a, a great, well, not a super long tail, but a, you know, medium length tail that kind of goes into this curve or almost like a horse tail type of thing. And then above that tail, there's this big patch on the rump that is this crazy mix of like black, magenta, and turquoise fringes on those feathers. And that's the fireback back. The fireback
1: is actually a golden line that's hidden between the wings. I don't know if I've ever seen that. No, you only see it when they flap their wings. So the the males, they kind of rear up and they, they do this beating sound. They a beating sound. And if you see them from behind, you see this golden line down its back. So those are a little bit fire-like. They're, they're like glowing embers, those little scaly kind of, dark red feathers but it actually has this glowing kind of orangey yellow line down its back I didn't even realize that
0: and I always (laughs) just thought that those like uh, top of the tail marks was the fireback wow okay the base color of this bird is this kind of you know powder blue Mm. mixed in with some black and deep blue there's like some black scaly pattern across the shoulder the belly has like a deeper blue on, on a black base color. The face is mostly red bare skin which is quite bizarre and then there are these little wattles that hang down on either side Mm. of the bill (laughs) and then on the top of the head there's this almost comical little crest of like little feathers sticking up you know it's almost like a kid has drawn some kind of fake bird this
1: goofy little crest It's just a beautiful bird but it, it just kind of exudes class you know it's not it's not gaudy or kitsch or anything like that. It's just really, it just looks, it looks classy and, and expensive. <laughs> With a little note of absurdity, I would say. Yeah. Like the, yeah.
0: yeah, the, the base coloration, it's not over the top, but then there are these little details that are like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Great bird for sure. And man, there's so many great pheasants in Asia and mm. they're almost all difficult to see. That's, you know, Siamese fireback is actually one of the easier ones among that group. Well, speaking of difficult birds, we'll move up (laughs) to your number two sighting. A little shudder runs down my spine when I think about this bird. This is the mountain scops owl. To expand, Ken. Well, this is a very easy to hear bird in many (laughs) places. Basically... Almost any mountain or hill forest anywhere in Asia, you can hear this bird. It seems to exist at remarkably high densities. Usually when that's the case with an owl, it's not very hard to see, right? You you walk around, you maybe go through a few territories, you call, the bird responds, or, or you might even just bump into them without even having to call them. None of those things is the case with this bird. <laughs> it is just devilishly bafflingly difficult to see consistently every time you look for it yep. all around the continent. I just don't even understand how <laughs> it can be as elusive as it is. I, I've only had one good view of this bird ever, and I've looked for it dozens and dozens of times.
1: It's not the sort of bird that you want to see on a target list of birds you've got to find somebody. you know? No. It's, no. <laughs> it's a weird one, eh? a weird one owls are kind of interesting in that each one has got its own little personality some give themselves up pretty easily other ones are more difficult other ones are sitters other ones fly in other ones you have to walk to you know there's a there's a good deal of knowledge and and skill and field craft to be able to pull out these birds and find these birds you know owling is a real art yeah so i saw this bird on the list and i was thinking oh no and we were passing this place. There's a place called the Doi Chang Dao. I think it's the third highest mountain in Thailand. And it has a beautiful temple at the base that's just in the lower little rock faces and all these steps going up and surrounded by nice forest. And it's a real authentic temple. It's got monks walking up and down all day long. Lots of nice lodges nearby, nice restaurants. It's a really quite a cool place to bird and to stay. And this is one of these places where you any time of year you'll go there and you'll hear mountain Scops Owl calling. I've been there before, I think in the rainy season, with a friend and we, we went owling. And we heard the bird and I said, we're not going to see it. And I said, I'll do play it just in case. And this thing actually came in fairly quickly and showed itself. So I was thinking that maybe it's a seasonal thing. Certain seasons it's, it's more responsive than others. So I, I thought it was worth a try. I didn't hold that much hope in in finding it for these ladies. As a backup, there's a forest quite near my my house, like in in Chiang Mai. There's a, a small mountain called Doi Suthep, and I knew this bird must be up there. And I thought, like before the a couple of days before the tour, I, I took my son up there. I've actually recorded this as a a bonus content episode for our patrons, so I won't go into too many details. But yeah, we went up. And we found the bird up there and we and we managed to call it in and see it. I mean it took it took quite a while. Yeah, so that was my backup. If I didn't get it at Doi Chang Dao, I thought when we come back through, we spend the night in Chiang Mai and, and we'll try we'll try for it on the mountain there. But we went out and yeah, maybe just around dusk, and we were trying for some of other owls, and we didn't really, you know, we heard some, didn't see them. And then we went for dinner, and we thought, because the Scops owls, they normally call a little bit later, you know, 8 p.m., 9 p.m. So we thought we'll go for dinner, and then we'll go back out owling again. So we had this delicious dinner, and then we went out again. And it wasn't long before we had one calling, and I played it, and then it was kind of distant, and they got this two-note, very high-pitched call. They go, beep, beep. And I heard them in the distance, try and walk closer, and it just keeps playing. And and we had one a little close. I recorded it, and it it just wasn't really coming in close, and I couldn't really get to where it was. And then I hear another one, so I, I start walking towards that. That's towards a temple. We were, like, on the temple entrance road, birding here. And we went inside the temple, which isn't locked at night or anything. There's a few temples often have dogs there, like feral dogs. And they start barking, and it's just the usual, you know, it doesn't help. It's not conducive to howling. But one dog starts barking, and we're trying to howl. And Anyway, it, it shuts up in the end. And then we keep hearing more and more owls, and I'm always trying to walk towards them. And then I hear them towards the temple steps. So we, like, walk up to the temple steps and just walk up a few. And I play it, and I can hear it again. And then there's this one calling quite close. And the way I saw it on Tep. Was by recording the actual voice, not playing a tape, but actually recording it and playing it playing it back with its own voice. So mm. it came in close enough for me to record it. And also there was two birds. One was higher pitched than the other, so I think it might be that males and females. Usually the higher pitched ones are the males. So there were both these were calling, and I think you know males and females respond differently to male and female calls. So I'm playing it back, and then we try, and, and I've got my, of course, I've got my thermal scope here, scanning around, nothing. And then they kind of melt away, and they're calling in the distance again, and then I keep trying. I try again, and they come in again, and I'm kind of shining up, and just to see, you know, even if you get one flying, you know, we'll, we'll still count it and be happy. Oh, that- that's a victory. That's yeah. a victory, yeah. Get a, get a bird just, just flying across. So I'm kind of shining up in the trees. I'm calling back, and I'm just waiting for this thing just to fly overhead. And it doesn't. Like they just kind of go quiet, and another one starts calling. And it just went on like this for a while. And finally, we had a bird calling, and it looks like I should be able to see it. There's this wall of vegetation. It's calling from the middle of it. And I'm looking around with my thermoscope, and I see a red dot. And and the ladies are down, they're like 20 steps down. It's you know, it's pitch black. And I'm like, come up here quickly, quickly, quickly. <laughs> and they're coming up, and then I I kind of shine a light on it, and I can't see anything. It's like and it turned out to be like some sort of termite nest or something like that, this this red thing. And I was like, oh no. And I'm ready to give up. It's just really not happening. And then there's another one calling nearby. And and I think this was this this one is almost like directly overhead. And I turn the light because, again, you were, you were mentioning before in one of the last podcasts that with the thermal scope, you don't need to have a light on. So I turn the light off. I'm scanning around, and I see this red dot overhead. And then I'm kind of like walking back up the stairs a little bit just to get a little bit higher. And I look again, can still see the red dot. And I put my light on. I've got the bird. And I'm saying, like, come on, come on, <laughs> come up here, come up here. And they're, you know, the elderly, and it's dark and there's no handrail, and they're kind of looking up <laughs> on these like steps. And, you know, often older people's balance is not quite as good. And and they're getting sore necks looking up. And it's just, you know, there's all these things against us. And I think an oh, this is gonna go. And I'm like, come on, it's come fly. It's on. Gonna you gonna can fly. do it. You can <laughs> come up here, you can do it. And they get up there, and I'm shining, and I was like, Can you see it? Can you see it? And I was like, No, no. <laughs> It's like keep trying, please, and and it, yes, okay, I've got it. And they're looking up, and they and they can finally see this, this bird. And, and now it's sat quite happily on this branch, just calling away. And we go up a few more steps and get a better angle, and we're shining, and they get a good view. And you know their necks are hurting, and they're worried about falling over. And then finally, both of them get a good view. I get some, I get some photos, and it's all a big success and this this was a major this lady had traveled all over asia and missed this bird probably more than any other she'd probably tried for it you know 10 times and missed it every single yep. time so this was a big nemesis of hers and it was a big coup just to just to get that i was like really happy to to get that bird for us so yeah that was quite an adventure
0: you know i've occasionally let's say i've had somebody who is in southeast asia for the first time and yeah. we just happened to get a mountain cell yep. on that i always feel like you didn't earn this you, you, did, you don't yeah, you appreciate what you're seeing yeah. here and you know i often tell them that in a you know obviously kind of a joking way but yeah that it sounds like uh, she had really she, earned her she really she really earned it <laughs> tried over and over again
1: but yeah you should definitely uh, listen to um the little bonus content episode i did with uh, with me and felix going up this mountain looking for this scops because this was a nemesis of his you know he's only 11 but he'd he'd, <laughs> he'd like haunted him for years well he, back he, to when he was well seven. i mean you know at least you know three or four years he'd been trying to see this bird and i think probably five or six times he'd missed it and he was getting a bit pissed off thinking that you know he was never going to see this bird so he was delighted as well to find he found it as well he was he was using the thermal scope and he actually spotted it so that was a that was a big one yeah I think every time you find it, you you kind of learn a little bit more about it. I've learned a few tricks and I think think I'm getting better at finding this bird now. Hmm. Well, maybe I'll visit and you can uh, show it to me.
0: I'd love to get a proper (laughs) view and I've never photographed it, so that would be a good mission. Yep. What you describe about like you have a bird in a spotlight or in a (laughs) scope, but you know it's something that may fly and you have people basically coming up a hill Oh man, I've been in that situation so many times, and you're just like willing them up the hill, right? It's, it's so just tense. Willing the bird, to, like you, you know that there's no such thing as like telepathy, but you're you're just trying. You're exerting all
1: the sort of force of uh, <laughs> will that you can. A bit of urgency and a bit of concentrated effort can save you hours, absolutely hours. Oh, yeah, just a exactly. few seconds. Often when people exactly. miss it, it's by like a second. If I'm saying get up here right now, you know, you you move, and you get there, and you you try and see the thing, because otherwise, you, it could be, you know, with this, you know, it could have been an extra three-hour owling mission up this other mountain, you know. <laughs> so it's hours of sleep uh, sacrificed. Yeah, for one second of you know, yeah,
0: right. We've also both been doing this long enough that we do understand the <laughs> risks of somebody falling and hurting themselves. Yeah. And so, we're you know, you're, you, you are not trying to rush, unduly rush someone. Yeah. Or it's a balance. It, so it all comes back to the Malagasy, quickly, quickly, slowly, quickly, slowly. Quickly, quickly, slowly, slowly. Come exactly. as quickly as you can, but safely <laughs>
1: li- Don't do caution. Yeah. <laughs> we should get t-shirts uh, yeah. made quickly, quickly, slowly, slowly. Absolutely.
0: Oh. All right, well, time for the, the grand finale, Charlie's number one sighting of his recent Thailand trip. This is a bird I just saw for the first time last year. Pretty wide range, but just so difficult to
1: see everywhere. And this is red-legged crake. This is another very beautiful bird. It's kind of like a rusty orange color with this barring on the belly, these bright red legs, bright red eye. It's a cool bird. It's, it's supposed to be like a breeding visitor to central thailand not not a not a winter visit I, this is december now you know and when she had it on a list i was like nah but then i was thinking wait a minute back in 2019 i did a, a birding tour in december and we found this bird so you know maybe there's a chance it was actually at ban maka which is one of my favorite lodges in the world it's like a proper birding lodge outside this yep. national park called ginga i mean there and it's run by a couple who are birders and bird guides, so they they really know what people want. They organize trips to to um, photographic blinds, and you know they they're usually clued up. They've got great intel on the birds and stuff.
0: It's a little piece of Costa Rica in Thailand. It is,
1: yeah. <laughs> it's great, and they also the the guy this is a British guy he's very into herps as well, so he does these herp walks. And we'd we'd sort of finish for the day. We'd had dinner, gone back to the rooms, and I hear this shouting outside. It's like, red leg crate, red light crate. And then I knock on the client's door and we charge down there. This is my my Canadian friends, this couple that that you know. And then we charge down there and they've found it sleeping. And we go back, and I think it might have flown a little bit, and we're following this thing, and then and then we managed to get this thing's Spotlit, and we we see this bird sleeping. So I remember, wait a minute. So I've I've seen this bird sleeping along this trail, you know, four years ago. So after dinner, I actually left the clients. We did the list, we ate the food, and I thought, okay, you guys wait here for twenty minutes. I'm just going to go for a quick look. So I I set off on my own, armed with my spotlight and my thermal scope, and I'm I'm just scanning around and I'm not not seeing much. I think I might have seen a couple of small sleeping birds, but then I see I see like a arboreal rat or something like that. It's kind of crawling through the trees, and I I try to spotlight it. I can't see it, and I'm following it with my scope, and and it kind of goes off the trail. So I'm kind of go off the trail and follow this thing, and I'm trying looking around and still don't see it, and I kind of go further in. So I'm I'm probably ten meters off the trail. And then I, I lose it, and this thing just kind of disappears. And I thought, "Oh, I'll just have a quick scan around here." and scan, scan scan, and then I just see this huge red dot above this, this lake just on a branch, maybe 10 feet off the ground, or eight feet off the ground. Yeah, and then I, I, I put my spotlight on it, and I see this red leg crate just there sleeping. It was a complete, <laughs> It was a complete fluke, because it was totally off the trail, and I just looked upon this bird. And I thought okay I've got to try and remember now cuz I'd bushwhacked to get yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. I've got to get back to the trail, go and get the clients, bring <laughs> them back and remember exactly where where this
0: bird is. And um and having been in that situation many times, that yeah. is so much
1: more difficult than you think it's going to be. Yep. Especially in the dark. So, you know, I'm 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 turning around every couple of steps looking for little milestones or field marks, or, you know, some distinctive trees or something. And I, Okay, the tree with a gray bark, tree with a little snapped-off branch on the left, and and I and then I get back to the trail, and I lay some branches. I, I, I make like a big X marks a spot on the trail, and then I rush back. It's maybe 200 yards back to the restaurant. I say, okay, come with me, and then we go back along. I find the X marks a spot, and then I, I find a tree and another tree, and I, I kind of get back to the same spot and start scanning around. I can't see it think, Oh, maybe it moved, and I just kind of move around a little bit and try, and then and then I've got it, and 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 it's and then I, I spotlight it, and the two ladies get it, and I was like, oh, this is great, and then this line, there must have been like fifteen people in the restaurant, and I'd rushed in there, and was like, okay, come with me right now, you know, real sense of urgency, and then everybody <laughs> else, everybody else from the restaurant starts filing out, wondering what's going. We don't going. know what we're looking for, or why we're here, but you know. And a lot of the time, there they're not. They they have like general nature people there as well. These kind of Costa Rican uh, nature tour kind of people. Right. I would say maybe half the people at Ban Maka are birders, and the other half are just you know general nature people. And all these people came and like, oh, what is it? What are you looking at like this? And and I'm kind of getting all these other people on there, and and everybody's like loving the whole drama of the situation that there's this kind of like rare but I was like oh my god how did you find that that bird you know and i looked like some like and then the the owners of the lodge were like oh wow that's a really good find you know and and it was like uh, everybody was very impressed that i'd found this bird and this other guy said like how on earth did you find that like here of all places so far off the trail you know and and, and, it, and i just i just looked like a real uh, a, a real expert it was it was pretty funny but yeah, it was it was it was only the second time I'd seen the bird, and I really wasn't expecting to see it. And it's a gorgeous bird as well. This is like a full adult plumage.
0: It's a weird thing with the thermal. I'm, there's still a learning curve, and I'm still not quite there. But you know, one of the things I've realized is that the tiniest little difference in perspective can completely hide a bird. Yeah. You know, sometimes it has the ability to look through vegetation if the vegetation is not very dense or woody. Yeah. But, but if you just get something behind some little trunk, I mean, I had in Costa Rica, I had this dusky nightjar that was just singing away <laughs> overhead in a tree, like a big cloud forest tree. And I could not see this thing with the thermal or with any other wet. I, I think it was basically must've been like nestled down on some mossy branch and that pretty much blocks any kind of ther- thermal signature or eye shine and very frustrating.
1: But, uh, I think if you move around and you find the spot where you've got the most heat, that's also going to be the spot that's where you've, where got, where you've got the window. Uh, exactly. That's the, yeah, so that's quite kind of a, a good way to do it. But the, one of the problems with it is it doesn't give you any sense of, of distance. This thing could be, you know, 10 feet away or it could be 50 feet away. So you don't really know where to look. You know, the sort of, the position on a on you know, in a 2D position, but you don't know how far back it is, which is quite... Exactly. It really helped on this trip. We, we also got the other crake, the slady leg crake, which is another target of theirs. And this one we got at one of these wonderful feeding blinds, along with some other amazing birds, phrygidus partridges and barback partridges and stuff. And this bird came in just at dusk to bathe in this little pond. So we got got the double, you know, we got these two incredibly difficult crakes. So it was, uh, yeah, it was very successful. Wonderful place. It's really one of my favorite places to bird. Among all the dynamic places
0: in Thailand where you never know what you're going to see, what birds, what mammals, I think Kanker Chan is the most dynamic of all of those. It's because you have this mix of like
1: southern Thailand birds and mountain birds and lowland birds. I think I sent you a picture of it, but I laid to rest my probably my biggest <laughs> mammal nemesis in the world yeah which was the uh, the sun bear I won't go into now we, we maybe 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 do a thailand top 5 mammals or but i anyway i i've i've done another little uh, bonus episode content for that one but it it was a huge thing that i wanted to see this and i'd missed it so many times so i was really that was probably the thing that i was most overjoyed on the whole tour to see was this was his son bear in canker but like you say it's such a dynamic place no matter how many times you go there phil had a marbled cat walking across the road once you know he, he, there's black wow. panthers there there's you know there's literally you know no limit on on what what you can see and it's just a an incredibly exciting place to visit I think there's six different species
0: of broadbills yep. uh-huh. in Khun Chan, or maybe five. There's even the, the primates. I think you have two different species yep. of langurs. There's three different species uh-huh. of macaques,
1: uh, a couple of which are really cool and slow yeah, lorises. It's, um, nah, it's uh, it's it's just a very exciting place.
0: And it's funny because at Khun Chan, you kind of you've come across the plains of that central Thailand. Valley, like that big, incredibly densely populated river valley, you haven't seen a lot of natural habitat. And you just dip into the edge of this national park and all of a sudden you just start seeing stuff. It's it's I don't know I find it a kind of an abrupt transition. You don't even go very far up the mountain, and it's just so wild. And I guess there those mountains are still quite well preserved, and there's you know a lot of wild area on the other side of the border in Myanmar. And those mountains run all the way down into the
1: peninsula. So the Tenasserim really, Mountains, just, yeah, they go area. all the way along that Thai, Myanmar border. Huge area of forest that's still preserved. There
0: must be so many great places Imagine. in those mountains, but most of them are just inaccessible, which is why yeah. they're still there, why they're not destroyed.
1: Okay, yeah, I feel uh, I feel quite tired after all that uh, exertion of uh, describing all these um these amazing things. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was a wonderful trip. I, lo- I love I I live in Thailand. I've done so many tours here. I never get bored of it. It's just such an exciting place. So uh, yeah, really nice to recount these. Thanks for listening ken thanks for all your great questions thanks everybody for listening to this uh, big thanks to our patrons got a couple of uh, good bonus episodes for you uh, coming soon and we're gonna sign out with one of the birds i mentioned today which is the mangrove pitta it's got quite a cool call which you'll hear it's very uh, quite a lot of pittas have have a similar call to this don't they? it's kind of double note do you know what um, pitta is in Thai? Um, it's knock, nope. which is bird, and then teo Nok Knock teo, leo. teo leo is the sound that it makes. Teo leo. Teo leo. Ah. <laughs> nok A lot Love of them it. are onomatopoeic names. So, yeah, it makes this kind of like teo leo um, noise. But, yeah, it's a very cool bird. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you all next time on Naturally Adventurous.